Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife, Big T Trauma. This is Patrick Georgioff, and man, am I excited to be here. It's been a crazy few days at Behind the Knife. Uh, We've been working our tails off. Uh, Just today, I had meetings regarding our trauma surgery video atlas. This is something totally new. It's never been done before. Amazing footage. Uh, We have 1.8 terabytes of footage that we're working through uh, to try to clean up and uh, make something amazing for you all. We have a BTK suture kit and not time board that we're working on. It's got fantastic videos for both right-handed and left-handed students and trainees. We're very excited about that. We're also cranking away on a massive medical student and advanced practice provider curriculum. And we've got a brand new website with accompanying Android and iPhone apps coming out uh, sometime next year, but we're uh, digging it deep into that as well. It's all really great stuff. We are here to follow that up with the Big T Trauma Series. As always, I am joined by my uh, former co-fellows at the home of Big T Trauma, University of Texas in Houston, Dr. Teddy Puzio, who is faculty at UT and assistant program director for the Acute Care Fellowship and Dr. Jason Brill, now in Hawaii and the Trauma Medical Director for United States Indo-Pacific Command. Gentlemen, welcome. Yeah, hey, Patrick. Now, if you guys, uh, our listeners, if you like trauma and you haven't already listened to the rest of our Big T Trauma Series, I want to encourage you to check it out on our website under the Listen tab. If you click Listen, you can sort by topic or series. We've covered resuscitative thoracotomy, uh, trauma pitfalls, solid organ injury, gun violence, complex cases, transfusion medicine, the list goes on and on and on. That's not even half of them. So check it out if you're a big fan of trauma. And today we're going to discuss pelvic trauma, specifically hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures. This is such an important topic because these patients can be really, really challenging to care for because they're super sick and there are countless forks in the road when it comes to their management. Are they stable enough for the CT scan? Do I need a binder for this fracture? Should I be in the OR right now? Or am I okay to wait for IR? What about checking for genital urinary injuries? There's just a lot uh, to consider. And pelvic fractures with hemorrhage are deadly. And they've remained so for quite some time. Uh, Jason, just how deadly are these injuries? Yeah, so fairly deadly was the short answer. All comers with unstable pelvic fractures experience mortality rates around 8 to 9%, and those are in very large series. Elderly patients experience even higher mortality rates, 20 to 40% in some modern series, so very deadly overall. Now, unfortunately, those rates really haven't improved over the last several decades, at least not in the larger data sets. And part of that is probably due to the high energy mechanism involved in crushing or opening a pelvis. Uh, So there are usually many other injuries associated with an unstable pelvis. 
And beyond that, the anatomy of the pelvis can be a real issue. Um, Teddy, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think you're you're talking about the venous plexus that covers the most of the inferior aspect of the pelvis, especially the posterior elements and the sacrum. So a tear in that venous plexus can result in significant bleeding, audible at times, as we like to say. It's a, it's a low pressure but high volume network, and there are lots of collaterals, and it can continue to supply blood to the, you know, the vessels, even though you think you're getting control, there's a lot of collaterals you got to think about. Yeah. And, and we'll return to that specific issue when we talk about IR intervention in a minute. Yeah. And, you know, it's important to remember that we, we think 80 to 85% of pelvic hematomas are actually venous in nature. Yeah. Super important number. And, and Teddy, on the anatomy subject, are there any other classification systems uh, we should discuss before we talk about how we evaluate these sick patients? Yeah. So when we think about classification, you know, there are several, of course, just like a lot of different things, but the most common system used to classify pelvic fractures is the Young and Burgess system. Now to us, non-orthopedic surgeons, this classification system is a little confusing or a lot confusing, honestly, but it describes both the fracture pattern um, with the impact mechanism, but also has degrees and severity. Um, Fortunately, it doesn't really matter that much to us as trauma surgeons, all of the, the nuances, uh, as multiple studies have really failed to demonstrate a consistent correlation between injury pattern and mortality, or even a need for hemorrhage control. Right. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll mention one specific fracture pattern, the anterior posterior compression or APC3, um, just because you're going to see that uh, in some textbooks and people will talk about it. It's the open book pelvic fracture. That's APC3. Uh, specifically, that's a disruption of the anterior and posterior sacroiliac ligaments. So w- one thing I, I learned as I was preparing for this, those are the strongest ligaments in the body. Mm-hmm. So that really tells you something about the Fun energy facts. transfer involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hey. So on, on plain films, what you should see is a very widened pubic symphysis and fractures or separations of the posterior aspects of the pelvic ring uh, right around the sacroiliac joints. That's your clue. Hey, I'm looking at a true open book pelvis fracture. Yeah. And, you know, when, which is really why these APC3s, aka open book pelvis patterns, carry such a high transfusion requirement and mortality rate. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on to evaluation. So specifically, how do we evaluate a patient with hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures in the trauma bay. And as we all know, it starts with a pelvic x-ray. Uh, pelvic fractures include ring disruptions, sacral fractures, acetabular fractures, avulsion fractures, et cetera. Um, there's an awful lot with that. Uh, and, and we did just cover that Young and Burgess system as well. Um, and uh, Ted, uh, I think, Jason, why, why don't you actually talk a little bit about the FAST exam? I think that's an important component to this in the workup. Yeah, so, I mean, almost everybody gets a FAST nowadays. It's a near universal component of the trauma evaluation. Um, It really meant more for unstable blunt patients, but that happens to be who we're talking about today. So as such, it's important that we make something really clear. The FAST can't be used to evaluate the retroperitoneum, and that's where pelvic bleeding occurs. Right. This is super important to recognize. The ultrasound allows you to take a peek inside the abdomen, but not their retroperitoneum. And that that's critical. I think uh, this comes up so frequently, um, especially for our new learners, our students, et cetera, to harp on that. Um, you throw that fast exam out, you're not 
seeing that RP. Um, oftentimes, though, you will, if the fracture is bad enough, if hemorrhage is severe enough, you know, you will have uh, some blood uh, in the abdomen as well. Uh, but that's not always the case. So don't right. be tricked by that. Yeah. But that being said, you know, fast is a crucial tool for us uh, in the trauma bay because it kind of helps you with that process of elimination, right? You have the bad, blunt trauma patient who's dying in front of you and you got to figure out very quickly where they're bleeding. So it goes back to the Five, five spaces, spaces, right? Right. Mm-hmm. We always talk about chest, abdomen, retroperitoneum, thighs, and then the street. Um, so you, you know, if there isn't exsanguinating external hemorrhage, then you get a chest X-ray. If you don't have a big hemothorax, then you go to your fast. That helps you decide whether or not there's intraperitoneal bleeding. If that's negative, look at the femurs. Are they deformed? And then you know your pelvic X-ray, which is kind of part of your primary survey. Um, we'll tell you if you have an unstable pelvis or obvious fractures. Now, again, Patrick, the retroperitoneum, like you said, it can it can burn you. Um, and once you've been burned once, you will always remember that. So a critical point is to to think about this fast in clinical practice is not a you know a dead end one way street. The fast is not a one and done. Uh, it's negative and that's it. You should think about repeating the fast, especially when you. Um, do it early on in your assessment and you resuscitate a patient uh, and then fast again and see, because sometimes mm-hmm. patients, like you said, if they're bleeding in their retroperitoneum, they can rupture into their peritoneum. Uh, and usually it's some kind of kidney that's going to go into the bucket eventually. Well, fool me once, right? Uh, I think that I think that's really awesome what you just said. You know, you didn't say anything about a CT scan, right? You talked about a bad, uh, a, an unstable patient who's bleeding from blunt injuries, and you talked about a chest X-ray. First of all, external hemorrhage, ruling that out. A chest X-ray to look in the chest, fast exam to look in the belly, not the retroperitoneum, and looking really closely at the femurs. Yeah, and, right. And yeah. It gives you so much information. I mean, that is your. That's why ATL is a setup like it is, and we can't you know can't emphasize that enough. Yeah. I mean, going back to the big picture here, you want to know where you want to take this patient first and what cavity you're going to enter first. Um, So as we are still in the emergency department or the trauma bay right now, I do want to throw out one big lesson learned as you're resuscitating these patients. Um, We want this hemodynamically unstable pelvic fracture to not have fluids going into the space that's bleeding. So please avoid placements of femoral venous catheters, you, that is not where you want your resuscitation fluid. Mm-hmm. So as Teddy mentioned, 80 to maybe 85% of pelvic bleeding is venous. So if you're going to put in a femoral resuscitation line, then a lot of that product that you're trying to give is going to pour out pour into right the pelvis. In. And, and while I can't say that I've seen that in a, a live person because um, you know don't have quite that ability and speed to do the pelvic exploration down there in the ED. In a cadaver, this is pretty readily apparent, uh, like if you're doing an asset course or something like that. If somebody puts in one of those femoral vein lines and they start pumping fluid in it and you lacerate some of that uh, venous plexus, you will see flu- uh, fluid pour out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So while we're on the the topic of things you should not do or no-nos in the trauma hey, day. I want to rock the pelvis. No, please I don't. Do. Don't rock the pelvis. I want to touch it. I want to. I want to touch it. I want to feel it. Yeah, I don't know. I I'm not sure where this comes from. Pelvis is stable. I'm rocking. Fear, yeah, there's there's no reason to do this. It doesn't really give you any reliable information to help you with the diagnosis and the treatment. It might hurt the patient, you know. And if you mash down hard enough, you could theoretically shift some of those fractures or dislodge clot and just really result in more bleeding. 
Right. Yeah. We, we really, uh, I'll second that. Don't, don't try to rock it. What works way better is just feeling for a widening of the pubic symphysis. So if you can feel a divot where the pubic bones come and meet anteriorly, just assume that's an unstable pelvis until proven otherwise. Right on. All right. So uh, let's talk about pelvis specific injuries uh, that can occur when the pelvic bones are fractured, they're shifting, they're lacerating things. So specifically injuries to the urethra, the bladder, vagina, rectum, et cetera. Um, Teddy, you want to start with uh, damn near killed him. <laughs> Teddy, you want to start with uh, urethral. That's my line. That's my. That's my. Oh, joke. sorry, sorry. Teddy, I'm Ure- so sorry. Urethral. Let's go with the urethral injury. So okay. you know, clinical features associated with urethral urethral injury include blood at the meatus, difficulty voiding. You may see scrotal or perineal ecchymosis and/or scrotal hematoma. So if you have any of those uh, present, then we would recommend you get a retrograde urethrogram. Uh, this is, if you haven't seen one or done one, it's performed by uh, inserting a Foley a couple centimeters into the urethra, partially inflating the balloon and injecting 50 cc's of dilute contrast. Uh, the alternative is you can use a lure lock syringe with contrast mm-hmm. and, and do it that way. Essentially, you're injecting contrast in, into the urethra um, and you get x-rays kind of under real time. If there's no extrav of contrast, then you can advance the catheter into the bladder. Um, but if you have extrav, then you should not advance. You should call urology and the patient will likely need a suprapubic tube placed. Yeah. Or a scope, right? Place it over a wire too is another sure. option. Yeah. Who does the, uh, who does the urethrograms at your, at the, your guys' institution? The residents by us. That's part yeah. of our protocols. Our radiology techs will do it at Wake Med. What about you, Jason? Uh, yeah, yeah, usually the techs are present and I, I always send the residents down there. I, I mean, I'm, I'm there on a regular basis too, just because, you know, it's, it's a good study to keep up, especially if you're in an austere setting one day and like you are the radiology tech, or maybe you've got somebody that's not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. It's a, a good thing to know how to do properly. It's simple. It, it's a simple effective. Yep. So let's talk about bladder injuries. Uh, these can definitely, uh, or these can be divided into extraperitoneal or intraperitoneal. And signs and symptoms suggestive of bladder injury include gross hematuria. That's that's a easy one. Superpubic tenderness and or difficulties voiding. And these injuries, your bladder injury in general, is often diagnosed on CT scan. You take a look at that scan as they're whizzing through, and you see some abnormalities uh, in the bladder, and your interest is definitely peaked with that. Um, and if you're you're watching those those images go through, and things look a little funny, you can always, in the patient stable enough, uh, you can always ask. Uh, your CT text to add on a CT cystogram while you're in there if you haven't already ordered it. And that involves the application of around 300 to 500 cc's or so of dilute contrast that's given uh, into the bladder uh, by uh, Foley catheter via gravity, the Foley's clamped, and then images are obtained to look for any type of extravasation. Yeah. And another option, if you don't have a Foley um, and you can wait 10 minutes to to obtain a CT urogram, um, you know, that'll basically catch the contrast bolus that you originally gave um, for your contrasted study. You just catch it during its excretory phase. Um, typically, you're going to see filling of the ureters and at least partial filling of the bladder with contrast. Of course, that is dependent on your patient's renal function yeah. and how long you wait after the IV contrast bolus. But 10 minutes is a, a fairly standard time. Um, it can miss some bladder injuries, uh, but it'll pretty reliably catch your ureteral injury. And kidney injuries, too. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, it kind of takes us down the line and leaves us with probably vaginal and rectal injuries next. So 
<laughs> for these, the most common sign of injury is bleeding. You know, the diagnosis you can make at the bedside with either a digital exam and or a speculum exam. Um, when it comes to erectile injury, uh, you should really be performing a proctoscopy if you're if there are worrisome findings yeah. on your physical exam, your CT scan. Uh, if there's a rectal injury secondary to blunt pelvic fractures, the patient should be diverted with the descending loop colostomy as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah there's really in, not. Sorry, right. go ahead, Jason. Yeah, well, I was going to say right at at the first operation, as long as your patient is stable enough to do that, I'm, I'm, you know, you want to do it soon. Yeah, uh, and then uh, the other caveat to that: other bowel injuries, you you may have to modify uh, that advice because again, these are often associated with other complex injuries. But you want to get that done soon. You generally do know do not want fecal matter, you know, bathing the pelvis, uh, yeah, the or hardware or whatever may go right. in there. And, and there's some conversation about penetrating injuries and the ability to repair it primarily and all that, which for the most part doesn't really work out. You still want to think about diverting, but there's no other you know answer for a blunt injury with a, a rectal injury. You need to divert that. That's just yeah. you know any of that conversation is taken off the table. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's um, focus on perhaps really the most important part of this entire podcast, and that's deciding whether or not the a patient should be taken to the CT scanner uh, or the OR. And uh, we're going to spell this out in some detail when we go through eight nuanced cases at the end of this episode. Uh, but I want to make the point loud and clear right here and right now that patients with ongoing hemodynamic instability, uh, presumed or known to be from pelvic fractures, they need to go to the OR for preperitoneal packing and whatever else you need to do to control their bleeding, not the CT scanner and not the CT scanner and then IR. And so uh, my personal cutoff uh, and something we're working on at WakeMed as an institutional guideline is four units of product. So if that patient has gotten four units of product from me and they are transiently responding or they're, they're not responding, well, we're not messing around with uh, IR, if they've already been to CT or going to CT first and then IR, they need to get to the operating room for preperitoneal packing. Yeah, I think that's a, a reasonable threshold. Um, you know, I'll personally go to the OR sooner if a patient arrives in extremis, um, you know, just pull the trigger then. Uh, or sometimes if we're using whole blood for the initial resuscitation, I'll decrease that to, to two units because that's around 900 mils of product. Mm -hmm. But the, the message is do not be scared to go right to the OR not knowing all of the injuries because you don't have a, a CT scan to go off of, you should be more scared to go to the CT scanner when you have a transiently responding or non-responder patient. That is not the right place to be. It's, it's a right. very uncomfortable place to be with, with the patient that you're worried about. Well, and, and the thing about that too is you don't take those other things off the table. I mean, you can go to the OR, you can pack, you can look, you may need to be an IR, especially if you're, uh, I think you may be dealing with, um, arterial injuries or the patient has ongoing instability from you know, really bad pelvic bleeding. You may be going straight from the OR to IR, and that allows your IR team to get there in time. Uh, you may go from the OR to the ICU and then to the CT scanner and then to IR. There's lots of different possibilities, yep, but lots the first place is get to the OR. That's the safest place to be. Yeah, that's, that's home. All right. So that's a good kind of wrap up of the evaluation piece. Um, but what are we supposed to do about these unstable pelvic fractures? You know, we're not orthopedic surgeons. So what are our options, I think, is the next kind of area that we should go? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so full disclosure, if you didn't know, the three of us aren't actually mm-hmm. trauma orthopods. Although every mm-hmm. time I walk in a room, they say, "Oh, orthopedic surgery's here." <laughs> sorry, do you? Uh, well, we do like your bubble. I just, um, I just grunt loudly. And <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. So, right. So the three of us are not going to definitively fix these complex pelvic fractures. Uh, but guess what? Damage control surgery concepts still apply here, yeah. just like they do in the belly. Uh, and I think we're actually pretty good at that. So first things first, pelvic binder as soon as possible. So in the field with EMS providers really should be the goal. But if that hasn't happened, put on a binder early in your primary survey. Uh, Teddy, give us some tips. Yeah. All right. So in general, there are two general types of binders. There's the sheet, um, which you can kind of make on your own, or there's some form of a manufactured pelvic binder device. Uh, When you place these, it's important to put them in the correct position. So they should be centered over the greater trochanters. If you go too high, you can imagine you're kind of pulling the iliac crest together and you can actually um, make the pelvic outlet expand. Uh, and make the injury worse that that's not your goal yeah and uh, we should mention too what type of fracture patterns you want to apply the the binder to so obviously an open book pelvic fracture that is a volume expanding fracture you want to close that space down decrease the amount of space for blood to to bleed into and so that's that's easy but once you move beyond that it actually gets a little bit controversial um and we're not going to go through it on the podcast today because we i still have these conversations with orthopedic colleagues, trauma colleagues, et cetera, about, you know, should the binder have gone on this patient or not? Um, uh, Probably when in doubt uh, for a a possible volume expanding injury that you would use the binder. Yeah. You Um, place one. And if that wasn't right, mm, sorry, I guess you'll learn. Yeah. And and hopefully you have some orthopedic colleagues nearby to say, actually, we don't want to do that. And you can take it down, but that's pretty nuanced. The, The other thing is that pelvic binders take a lot of practice. And you should definitely familiarize yourself with the model in your facility. Some have these new, you know, fancy pulley type systems, other things where you wrap it around here, wrap it around there. Half the time I still try like, I wrap it around and like, all these different ways, like a Roman sandal and it, it stays and that's great. Uh, but it, you ideally want to uh, familiarize yourself with what you're using. Uh, Jason, what if we don't have one of these actual pelvic binders, you know, commercial pelvic binders handy? All right, so the other option, um, and actually preferred in some instances, would just be a simple sheet, uh, usually folded down to a foot or two wide, and then you um, tighten it with two people, clamp it with hemostats or towel clips or anything else that'll hold it in place. Right. So what do we have to, but I guess for Teddy, what do we need to be aware about when it, when it comes to binders? What are some, some downsides to binders? side effects i think it's good to know that just like anything there's they're not always beneficial right if you don't need them you shouldn't use them uh, because they can cause problems right one is pressure ulcers so if you have these especially the commercially made ones that are on for a long period of time you can get pressure uh, necrosis of the skin so ideally they should come off uh, within 24 hours or even way sooner if possible Uh, The other problem that you get is you limit, you sometimes limit your access to the groins. So if you're going to need to do um, some type of intervention like Reboa or IR, stuff that we'll talk about later, you want to be able to get to your groins. Um, uh, That's why sheets are nice for this. You know, in in our institution, ortho likes to exchange the 
binders pretty quickly to a sheet because you can, one reason is you can actually like cut them to make room to access the groins and it doesn't uh, compromise the integrity of your kind of wrap on the pelvis. But uh, so that, you know, mentioning ortho and their preferences. So Jason, what, what about the topic of external fixation? How does that kind of play in? Yeah. Um, well, ideally, we would all love an on-call orthopedic trauma surgeon ready to apply pelvic fixation like at a moment's notice, as soon as we call them. Um, partly, the external fixation is nice and sturdy, and it gets the binder off. And so you can decrease this risk of pressure ulcers and improve access to the groin. Uh, but it's also really good at, at stabilizing the fractures. And a a quick plug for um, some of the military residents that might be listening to this, uh, you need to learn how to do this. You you may be called on to do this again, especially in austere settings. So this is something that needs to be in your armamentarium. Good call. All right, let's go. Let's talk about IR now. So Teddy, how is IR best utilized for these, these patients? Yeah, this is a good question. I think it depends on your, uh, your scenario, your, your uh, institution. I, I think, I always laugh because if if you're asking from an oral board's perspective, they're like never available, right? You don't have them. But, you know, IR is a very effective treatment strategy. And and ideally, it's best utilized in a hemodynamically stable patient with pelvic fractures that you have a CT scan that shows active extract. You know, if you have that blunt, unstable, bad pelvic fracture that's, you know, you're resuscitating and they're just sucking up your MTP products, they don't belong in IR because that's where they go to die. The the place that they belong is in the operating room. Yeah, absolutely. This goes back to what we were harping on a few minutes ago. Um, And some of this is just about time. Time, time, time. Being realistic here, you can get to the OR in 10 or maybe at the most 15 minutes and in a lot of centers that we work at. But the median time to intervention in emergent scenarios from patient arrival to procedure start two very big trauma centers, Red Duke and Shock Trauma, was three to five Which hours. Which is just insane. I mean, right? and that's three to five pro- hours. To procedure start, not to hemorrhage control. Right. Um, so, and, and, you know, these are centers that we know and love and perhaps, you know, one of us still works at. It's just, let's just be real- realistic. It's a long time to wait when your patient is continuing to bleed in front of you. And like Teddy said, is just sucking up blood products. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, Teddy, you earlier, you mentioned in the show that 80 to 85% of pelvic hemorrhages are, are venous in nature. So how does, um, arterial embolization help? Cause when, when IR goes in, they're poking the artery and they're putting coils and gel foam and all that in the artery. But again, we have venous bleeding. So what's that yeah, all about? No, it's, I mean, that's a good question, you know, and that leaves us with about 15% of injuries that are, um, arterial in nature and IR is, you know, perfect for that. Boom, it's done. But when you uh, have those venous injuries, even, you know, they can do proximal arterial embolization and that actually helps to kind of decrease the pressure head and and, and improve uh, control of venous bleeding itself. Right. Uh, there are several major branches from the internal iliac artery, basically as soon as it branches from the, the common iliac. Uh, so proximal embolization, um, typically with absorbable gelatin, which most people refer to as gel foam, um, can decrease the arterial inflow to a given vascular bed and therefore decrease the venous bleeding. Although I will send out a caveat, there's this um, a kind of bilateral 
uh, empiric or prophylactic um, proximal embolization. No, no, yeah, both internal <laughs> iliacs no, that no. has definitely fallen out of favor. Um, but there are still some situations where um, you know one sided is is still worth it. And even if you do a one sided embolization, gel foam or otherwise, if you have a patient who's really sick whose CK is climbing, things aren't sorting out and it's not making sense. You always have to consider you know the possibility of of pelvic musculature. Uh, a necrosis from, right. from blood flow from that IR procedure. Yep. So let's move on to preperitoneal packing. And so, as we all know, this refers to the placement of lap pads in the retropubic space in order to tamponade bleeding. And um, as we've talked about already, preperitoneal packing is definitely most effective for venous bleeding and for bony bleeding. And it may not be adequate for arterial uh, injury. And you may see that if you're packing a pelvis and it's it's maybe it's brighter red blood or it's filling up too briskly. Um, and uh, that, that could lead you to open up the belly and start playing with the iliac arteries uh, or getting to IR uh, uh, rapidly from the OR. And probably the biggest benefit of preperitoneal packing, like we mentioned uh, already, uh, is speed. You get the patient to the OR and start working on hemorrhage control uh, immediately. And again, we said three to five hours on average for IR, uh, getting the patient into the room at major trauma centers in the United States. Yeah. So I, I want to walk us through kind of the basic steps. Yeah. So preperitoneal packing, um, usually done via an eight to 10 centimeter or so suprapubic incision. Like I always say, bigger is better. Uh, typically the incision is midline, although I know some folks use a fantasteel incision. Um, you know, I guess that's an option. I, I personally can't spell that. So I, I stick with lower midline. Uh, and remember, you really want to stay outside Tough. of the peritoneum. So do not dive straight in there. You you really want to stay in that preperitoneal plane as you start your dissection. I, I mean, I think that it's not it's one of those things you you hear that, but until you see it or experience it again, you will kind of never forget it. You if you have a patient that you're going to do preperitoneal packing, you should not. There's no reason to just do a stem to stern laparotomy. Um, and if you have a patient that let's just say has intra-abdominal injuries, you know, a positive fast and a really bad pelvic fracture, you're going to make two separate incisions uh, so that you can keep that preperitoneal plane. So you do the infra-umbilical, do your packing, and then you go up kind of above the umbilicus, get into the peritoneum and, and pack or take care of whatever injuries you need to. Yeah, that's a, a great point, Teddy. All right, so uh, we've made our lower midline incision and we've dissected down to the preperitoneal plane. So if the bleeding is significant, which it is, if you're in the OR doing this, the hematoma has done a lot of the dissection for you already. Um, so you're going to see this big hematoma in the space where you actually need to put the laparotomy pads. Um, you are not putting these like on, on top of the space. You, you need to get them around to the back. That's where the bleeding is. So scoop out some clot and typically six or so laparotomy pads are placed around the, the bladder and on the side. So three on each side. Um, that's the classic description. Pelvis size will vary. Uh, and then the skin is usually rapidly closed with a, a whip stitch. And then ideally followed by external fixation right there in the OR. Yeah. So there's been lots of talk about preperitoneal packing recently. A lot of, you know, kind of look at the, take a step back in the pendulum, maybe swinging from IR or over kind of more towards preperitoneal packing or, or probably somewhere in the middle, uh, which is appropriate. Um, so let's take a second to review a little bit of the data on preperitoneal packing because it's something that's really common in Europe. 
but again, has become more common here in the United States to talk about more. You go to the trauma conferences and when I hear all about it. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. So the data for pre-perineal packing is, surprise, surprise, limited and of poor quality. And it's clearly lacking when it comes to the ability to even complete a randomized trial. So we'll use two meta-analyses for reference. Both will be in the show notes. The first is by Lee and colleagues. It was published in the Journal of Orthopedics and Traumatology in 2022 this year. So it included eight studies with 480 patients that compared patients treated with preperitoneal packing or a guideline that included preperitoneal packing to those that were not. And preperitoneal packing was found to be associated with reduced mortality, but it had no influence on total transfusion or length of stay. And the second study is by uh, McDonough and uh, colleagues was published in J Trauma also this year. And this was a medicine analysis that compared patients with blunt injury treated with angioembolization first to those treated with preperitoneal packing first. And this study found uh, significant differences between the groups, including higher ISS scores and age in the preperitoneal packing group, so not the same groups. And crude mortality was higher, though, in the angioembolization first group, um, uh, about a full 10% different, despite the fact that that preperitoneal uh, first group was more sick. Um, the, however, when you uh, uh, analyze the dual arm aspect of this study, it showed no difference in outcomes. And the average time of intervention was 71 minutes longer in the angioembolization group. And last thing uh, we should mention, too, is about a quarter of the patients treated with preperitoneal packing actually required subsequent angioembolization to control their hemorrhage. Again, kind of uh, going back to what we mentioned before, that preperitoneal packing may be just the beginning of your treatment of, for these patients. Yeah, yeah, which I, I personally think that's fine, right? Yeah, that, right. I think step it's one, fine, but it's IR also step two. It's important to know that that can happen, right? Like you should know that. I mean, almost thirty percent of the people that you pack, it's not the end of the story, right? So if you're in the OR, you did packing, and your anesthesia is like, hey, we're still giving MTP. You kind of have two, two, maybe three options. One, depending on where you are, if you know, we in Houston are fortunate to have a hybrid OR. Uh, we call IR and tell them to come to us, right? They, they actually scrub into our operating room and, and take care of business right there. In most centers, if you need IR, you're going to have to leave the OR. Um, so if you have, again, an unstable patient, leaving the OR is very uncomfortable, um, but an option if IR is rapidly available and close. The other uh, is the other option. The third option is that you can either do a, a repeat fast to see if maybe now your fast is positive, or mm-hmm. you just do a laparotomy uh, and the, the other way to control pelvic bleeding, specifically arterial bleeding, is to get down on the into, internal iliac arteries and just ligate them or, you know, one side, depending on which side. Yeah, and that's definitely doable, but it's it can be tough, right, in the setting of big injuries, yeah. bad. It sounds bad, easy. Hematoma, but, it's, right. You know, uh, easier said than done. And, 
you know, these patients are, again, really, really sick. They can die on you if you don't act quickly. And that's why it's also important, uh, despite all these kind of nuances we're talking about uh, in terms of treatment, do not forget the basics of trauma resuscitation, right? Ensure that you are giving a balanced resuscitation. Uh, don't forget about adding cryoprecipitating calcium when needed. Um, uh, if you're able, you want to use TEG at some point, uh, especially when you're into these deep into a massive transfusion or, or really at the end, too, of a transfusion to ensure uh, uh, that um, you're not missing something in terms of um, their coagulation uh, profile. You want to keep the patient warm and you don't want to waste a lot of time in the OR. This can burn you. I mean, this goes for any kind of bleeding trauma patient, but these pelvic hemorrhages can be so severe. You really, really want to focus on getting out of the OR, getting into the ICU, getting them warm. It can be magical to watch someone uh, cold and acidotic and bleeding in the OR and you close their belly whisk them away to the ICU and you go and see them, you know, 20 minutes later and they're all snuggled up in their, their bear huggers and they have warm sailing bags next to their face and towels around the heads and all that. And they're warming up and all of a sudden the pressors are coming down, their acidosis is starting to resolve um, because you're not messing with them anymore. Patrick, that is the best description of use of crystalloid in a trauma patient that I've <laughs> ever heard. Warming packs. I love it. Uh, that's really interesting, it's Patrick. Is, the crystalloid, what is it good for? <laughs> yeah, for warming your patient externally. I think it's that's great. Um, it's, is, is there a podcast that I reference to learn about all of this resuscitation? Gosh, you know, if only... Oh, there is. It's called the Big T Trauma Series. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. And we have two separate our, uh, ones we did earlier, uh, trauma resuscitation. So what, we, what do we call it? It was um, transfusion medicine for the trauma surgeon. And then the Correct, other one was, yeah. was TEG and anticoagulation. Tag and reverse yep. uh, anticoagulation too, yeah. Yep. All right, I need to bring up one last intervention. You have to, don't you? Before we go on. Don't do it. I'm going to say it. Ramoa. <coughs> Ramoa. All right, uh, but... To be fair, it's much more palatable in this setting. Yeah, deployment of Raboa in zone three, um, just above the aortic bifurcation, as long as you don't think that there's something going on in the abdomen, which would you know contraindicate zone three placement. But but if all you're dealing with is massive pelvic um, fractures and bleeding, this is the least controversial way to employ Raboa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's totally true. You know, if you Raboa is a tool, right? And there's a lot of people that would argue one way or the other, um, but it's a tool and it's an adjunct to treat pelvic hemorrhage. And we can't really talk about the unstable pelvic fracture patient without talking about Reboa and, and making sure that you can utilize it in your armamentarium if you have that resource. Yeah. So let's talk about the data just again, very briefly, uh, because data again, guy. the data to support its use, it's very limited. So we'll use a couple examples. So one example, the ACST quip retrospective uh, review is one big study that people kind of talk about about uh, a lot in reference. The other is the double AST aortic occlusion for resuscitation and trauma acute care surgery or the aorta registry, both of which have reported favorable outcomes associated with Reboa use. Importantly, though, these are retrospective data and they should be interpreted with caution. Uh, you can uh, certainly match uh, these patients. You can perform other statistical your corrections. But there, uh, you know, without a doubt, remains unmeasurable differences between the patients in the trauma bay who have a Reboa placed and the patient in the trauma bay who are rushed to the operating room for laparotomy, preperitoneal packing, et cetera. Um, and you know, discussions about Reboa suck up a lot of oxygen uh, in the room. And for that reason, uh, it's so important to remember that effective use of a Reboa really requires the entire trauma team. 
this is just academic unless you have a full team that knows how to use it. You know, the person placing it has to know how to place it, uh, but that team needs to know what the heck is going on, where the equipment is, how to use it, how to secure it, and then really what's next after it's placed and, and, and what's next while that's happening to ensure everything is, is moving forward. And so ineffective Reboa use really distracts the entire team from the goal at hand, which is hemorrhage control. Um, and while it is a very important tool, and again, should be part of your armamentarium, uh, there are some very real downsides uh, that are uh, you know, certainly more than academic, but really actually practical in nature. Yeah. And I think to add to that, Patrick, you mentioned the trauma team, but I would also make sure to point out that, you know, the anesthesia team is Mm -hmm. part of that trauma team, right? Because they can obviously see when you come up to the OR with a patient who has an aortic cross clamp, but they kind of lose sight that sometimes you have an internal aortic cross clamp for all intents and purposes. Um, So, all right, that's enough for BOA. Um, We've covered trauma evaluation, fracture stabilization, how you use IR, preparatory packing. Let's try to put this all together. You know, we came up with eight cases. Um, We just want to quickly run through these, make sure that you guys can follow us and and kind of think of these on your own and how you would approach these patients. So these are intentional um, to be short and let's see if we can kind of go through them. So, all right, uh, Jason, you ready? I'm ready. Mm. All right. Good job. Send it. A patient who rolls into the trauma bay after a high-speed MVC. You're fast and chest X-ray are negative. You get a pelvic uh, X-ray and you have an open book pelvic fracture. You put them in a binder, close down that pubic symphysis, uh, and they've been hemodynamically stable this this whole time. You haven't given them a drop of blood. So you naturally take them to the CT scanner and there's no extraf. What are you going to do? Were they riding a moped? Um, yes, maybe. Oh, okay. Well, irrelevant. (laughs) All right, fine. I guess I was stalling. Um, you know, this is one of those cases where if a patient really is that stable, um, you don't really need the binder. Um, now I, I, I'm not going to rock the pelvis. I'm not going to, you know, intentionally try to create bleeding. Um, but in this case, it sounds like the benefits are not outweighing the risks of the binder. So I'd take it off and I'd tell ortho that I was doing that. And if somebody runs down saying, no, no, don't do that, I guess we could tighten it back up. Uh, and then basically when the patient is ready to go to the OR with ortho, off they go. Okay, fair. Just so point Easy. Yeah. Softball. Yeah. The, the point is not every open book pelvic fracture is a patient who's dying and you have to do all the things. So That's right. All right, yeah, give the next one to Patrick. <laughs> okay, Patrick, here you go. Uh, high-speed MVC on the interstate. Yeah. Chest X-ray and fast, again, are negative. Open book pelvic fracture um, on your X-ray. You put them in a binder. They're hemodynamically stable. Haven't given them a drop of blood. You go to CT, and now there's a blush on your CT in the pelvis. Yeah. So we're going to leave that pelvic binder in place. Talk to IR see if they can do some of their magic. And then when that patient's stabilized, uh, orthopedic surgery can take them to the operating room and get that pelvic stabilized. Yep. Okay. Perfect use of IR. All right. Oh, IR. Uh, another softball. These get harder, I promise. Here mm. we go. So, uh, Jason, you're up again. High-speed MVC. Uh, chest X-ray and FAST are negative. You have an open-book pelvic fracture uh, with, on your X-ray. You put them in a binder. They are hemodynamically stable. You don't have to give them any blood. 
you go to CT uh, and there's XRAV on your CT. And while you're in the CT scanner, their blood pressure crumps. Uh, now they're systolic in the 70s and you give them two units of whole blood and they respond to hemodynamically normal again. Okay. So, so they've responded to my resuscitation. Obviously I'm a a little more worried about this person uh, and I'll probably watch them carefully while I am contacting IR. This is still one of those urgent or emergent consults. They need to come in as quickly as they can, but they had a good response and they're still stable after the, the couple of units. I think waiting for IR is, is reasonable here. And then, of course, OR with ortho um, once the patient is ready for a definitive surgery with them. Now, okay. this is a great example, too. Of, you know, I don't know what the rest of the world's like, but uh, ever since COVID with staffing issues and the hospital being you know overflowing, EDs can be a mess. And I think that happens at a lot of busy institutions where you get borders in the ED, people who are sick. Uh, that are staying down the ED. This goes for your ICU patients. And this certainly goes for this very patient, right? Um, they have some extra, they have pelvic fracture, they got two units, they responded nicely. Well, if you, you know, say, okay, well, they responded nicely, they're going to go to IR here shortly. I'm going to go up to the OR and do a lap coli. And you have yeah. no one from your team, you know, or from the ED team Not keeping a, a close eye on them. Well, that's how you get yourself into real trouble because um, they could be sitting there, you know, bleeding as IR is getting their stuff together. And, uh, you know, that's extremely important to communicate clearly with your team to make sure there's always, you know, someone down there, you know, checking very frequently uh, because they can get lost in the mix. Yeah, One of exactly. my attendings in residency used to say, got to leave a canary in the coal mine down the trauma bay to, to notify yeah. when things are going bad. All right, Patrick, your turn. Um Similar patient, MBC, chest X-ray, and fast are negative. They, again, have an open book pelvic fracture. You put them in a binder. Same thing, hemodynamically normal, no blood, get no blood products given. You go to CT, they have some extras. Just like the last patient, they get hypotensive in CT scanner. When that happens, you get tachycardic yourself. You give them two units of whole blood um, without a response, and now you give two more units of whole blood. And, you're right. still, you're still and this is a compliment to the case that we just did, right? Where, you know, yeah. Jason said, he's not, you know, still think stick with IR for now, but watch very closely. Uh, this patient has fallen out of that category and the safest place for them, as we discussed earlier, is taken to the operating room for preperitoneal packing. Ideally, if uh, you have your orthopedic uh, trauma colleagues around, you can get external fixation uh, done in that same, same trip as well. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add maybe telling IR, Hey, we're going to go mm-hmm. to the OR, but you, you need to be on deck. You need to be on standby in case this doesn't stop while we're in the OR doing the preperitoneal packing. Um, and of course, be aware of your system. Where would that patient then need to go? Can IR come to me or do I have to go to IR after I've done the preperitoneal packing and hopefully stabilize the patients so that they look a little better, but that you, you need plan B and C right. you know, ready behind yeah. you. It's also a good I think important to point out that you know, we say this all the time at our place that trauma is a team sport, right? And IR and ortho, you look at these scenarios, it's it's important to load the boat early, right? Because these patients may crump at any time and, and having them help you and know that this patient needs them as well is really important. So, I mean, you should actually be scared and nervous about these patients. I mean, very oh, yeah. legitimately. Yep. They, they will get sick on you. They will not, they'll look fine and then they won't. And that's what that's why we're doing this episode. That's the whole reason we've got together to do this episode is because it's such a sneaky and morbid uh, you know, injury pattern. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think one important difference about this scenario versus the previous one, you know, the, the previous one, you get, you gave a couple of units of blood and that person looked great afterwards. Normotensive, heart rate's okay. You're still watching them carefully, but they, they did fine. You know, there's no reason to rush somewhere if if your patient really does look good. This this most recent scenario, this patient didn't respond to 900 milliliters of blood. And then you're given another two, you know, just to get their blood pressure to a reasonable range. I think those are very different patients. And honestly, sometimes you don't know which one you're going to get while you're given the blood. Mm-hmm. But when, once that second unit is in, um, if they've got a really good response, I, I think um, you know, waiting for IR sometimes is the better part of valor there. But not if you're continuing to pour blood in them like that second patient. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. That's a good segue. Um, Jason, you're, you're up now. So again, high speed MVC patient comes in, you do a chest X-ray and a fast that are both negative. So now your decision point for where they're bleeding. So you have a pelvic X-ray that shows multiple numerous severe pelvic fractures, but no evidence of an open book pelvic. Um, they're hemodynamically unstable, you know, systolics in the seventies, heart rate in the one thirties, you start MTP and you can't get them to respond. Yeah. So very dangerous scenario here, right? You're, you're not entirely sure, but you're assuming that it's, you know, it's coming from the pelvis. Um, who knows what other you know, medications or intoxicants may, may be on board that you know, are helping to produce this, this situation. Um, so I, I think my conservative answer to that, the most conservative thing I can do is to take them to the OR for prepared to meal packing, um, and then get ortho to meet me up there, uh, hopefully to do external fixation, you know, following my prepared to meal packing, and then plus or minus Roboa use, depending on, you know, how quickly they are requiring blood products and, and perhaps, you know, how good my response is after I place those prepared to meal packs. If they're doing much better afterwards, you know, okay. Uh, and if they're not, you know, maybe a rebel balloon needs to go up there uh, and then contacting IR as backup again. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's definitely a good summary for a really hard situation that can kind of go a lot of different ways. Um, all right, Patrick, <clears throat> again, MVC, high rate of speed, chest X-ray negative, fast is positive, um, but you get a pelvic X-ray and there's, again, multiple severe pelvic fractures, no evidence of an open book pelvic fracture. This patient, just like the last one, very unstable. You start massive transfusion and they remain unstable tachycardic. Sure. So this patient's going to the OR for an X lab. And uh, when you get into the belly, you will be able to look at the RP, see if there's lots of blood back there, look down into the pelvic area. Um, That, as we talked about before, my incision is going to stop short of that stem to stern. uh, So that should we need to do a separate uh, lower midline incision, to perform prepared nail packing, that still, you know, is an option, but start with the X slab and take a look from the inside. And, um, uh, that'd be my first step for that patient. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I'll, I'll throw out, you could also consider Reboa for this patient, but mm-hmm. if you're going to put up a Reboa in this patient who let's say is really unstable and you're worried that you're even going to make it up to the OR, that's a zone one Reboa. You've got mm-hmm. a positive fast, you're bleeding in the belly, so you've got to assume that there's an injury that could be made worse with Reboa if you put it in zone three. So it's got to go to zone one, which now you're talking to like 
20, 30 minutes, I need that balloon down. That's not the same as putting up a zone three rubella, which it's not like you can sit back and, you know, smoke and joke as you're heading upstairs, but, but it is a little bit of a different sense of urgency when you do that zone one versus three. Yeah. Good point. Um, all right, Jason, you're, you're up next. So in this scenario, you have a patient, let's say auto pedestrian, um, who had an isolated pelvic fracture, uh, was very unstable. You took them upstairs to the OR. You did preperitoneal packing. I'm sure it was done very well then. <laughs> Flawless. Ortho, Beautiful execution. Ortho comes in, they put an external fixator on, patient stable. High fives all around. They're not getting more blood transfusion, no more vasopressin. You take the drapes down and all of a sudden you notice that this male patient has blood at their meatus. All right. Well, I mean, it sounds like things have gone pretty well, so let's not screw it up now. Uh, I would start with a urethrogram. Um, and then if, if that's positive, uh, probably call urology for cystoscopy and an attempt at a Foley placement or whatever they want to do. Um, and then also a, a cysto. Uh, and if that's positive and it's an intraperitoneal injury, um, you know, if Hopefully, I still have these separate incisions, and I would continue with uh, with the X lap uh, north of my preperitoneal packing incision. Um, and if it's positive and it's extra peritoneal, you know, at least place the the foley again, assuming that the urethrogram looks okay, or or urology can come in and place it. But I don't necessarily have to take care of that extra peritoneal you know, injury right then that gets a little nuanced because, well, if you have created a space and you've got packs in there, you've got an extra peritoneal uh, injury, what do you do with it? But, um, we won't go down into the weeds in that. That would be the general approach. Yeah. Yeah, Urethrogram, call urology if positive, and then, a you know, cysto uh, and if positive for an intraperitoneal, you're, you're ready to do the X lap and fix that up. Okay. Um, Patrick, last one, Mm. similar. Same patient, uh, auto pedestrian. You take to the OR. You did preperitoneal packing. They got an X fix. Patient stable. High fives. No more blood. No more vasopressors. You take the drapes down, and now you notice they have blood coming out of their rectum. Yeah. What do you do? And so, you know, we should mention that for all these patients with any, uh, you know, significant pelvic fracture that again, like we talked about at the beginning, you're doing your, your digital exam, uh, ideally, uh, certainly if anything's positive on there, or there's any concerning findings, if you happen to have a CT scan that you're doing proctoscopy for that second look yeah. or flexible sigmoidoscopy for that second look. And so this should be, again, the standard, but you mentioned this patient, we got blood per rectum, bad fracture. We're stable at this point, stable-ish. Um, so to start with a careful digital exam, again, careful because you don't want to hurt your finger on these bone fragments or shards that may be, that may be there. And, um, and the question here then is logistics of performing a proctoscopy, like a rigid scope for a patient who's X fixed, or maybe they have a binder on and they're lying in the bed. That's extremely hard to do. You have a little bit of more mobility when you have an X fix in place uh, because things are a little more stable. You do a little bit. Uh, you know, get the legs moved around in a way that allows you a little bit of access, but that's also why flexible sigmoid scopes better because the patient can still be lying flat and you just got to kind of work, work your way into there and find, yeah. find the anus to get the flex sig in there. Um, but in this case, uh, that's what you'd want to do. You want to, you want to take a look because ideally, uh, you're not leaving the operating room if they're stable, uh, without doing a diverting ostomy, like we talked about before. Um, you know, a lot of times you can't do all that stuff. 
during that initial surgery. I mean, or, or yeah. rarely do all that stuff during the initial surgery. So that, that stays at the top of your list of things to do at the immediate take back or after 12 hours in the ICU uh, to confirm these things. Um, uh, you may be even at the bedside in the ICU, uh, but you want to make, you know, double, triple check these things. So you're not stuck in a scenario where a week later uh, they have neck fascia, the perineum, because yeah. there's a, re- a missed rectal injury. Yeah, yeah and both of the last two bears. that you have, when you have someone who has preperitoneal packing, you're, you know, you're guaranteeing that you're coming back to the operating room, right? Mm-hmm. So you can put those things on the agenda when they, you know for sure that they're resuscitated and that you can... And- and I don't know if we mentioned it, but those packs, you know, packs are at risk of infection. Did we talk about that already? They should come out uh, in less than 20, 24 hours or less, 48 hours less for sure. Really, you should shoot for 24 hours or less. And you should never be repacking these pelvises because that, that's really where um, studies show that the risk of infection goes up significantly higher. Um, so if you need to be repacking, uh, don't. And think about something else that you can do like IR or whatever else needs to happen next to make that stop bleeding. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, you you're you're not going back in there just to like switch them out and wait another 24 hours. I think that's a great point. That's um that's a real pitfall and will result in you know horrible pelvic sepsis if yeah. if those continue to sit as foreign bodies in there, which is what they are. And then you add a little bit of stool in there from the rectal. Just a little, just a little, a little touch, a little pinch of stool. That's, that's not mix good. it in. All right. Uh, that was awesome, guys. Let's wrap it up. Uh, it's not like a broken record here. Again, for the patients with truly hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures, time to hemorrhage control is paramount. Don't get stuck waiting for two or three or more hours for IR while you're massively transfusing your patient. Um, you know, We alluded to this before, but you can only give so much blood before these patients' physiology becomes so deranged that they can actually be unrecoverable. You know, uh, uh, they can get that sick or they develop abdominal compartment syndrome, require emergency uh, decompression. Um, again, OR first, then IR is needed, plus or minus Reboa. Um, don't be tricked. In, in, in often when you are kind of Monday morning quarterback in these cases, you're at M&M or whatever looking back, you notice how even all of us have been tricked, right? You're tricked in, when you're watching that patient, you're kind of in the, in the mix, or you fixate on, on something that you don't need to be. Um, and this is where guidelines come in, can be very helpful, right? To have that trigger. And we mentioned a trigger for heading to the operating room. Um, and one of the best known teams to, uh, in, in, in trauma surgeons, Dr. Burlew at uh, Denver Health um, has created an algorithm that was in, uh, it was 2017 in J-Trauma that recommends preperitoneal pelvic packing with external fixation for hemodynamically unstable pelvic fractures when they receive more than two units of blood. So having a guideline in your institution where it takes some of the thinking out of it to say, well, you know, patient's too sick. My guideline here says I'm going to the OR. That's probably one of the best things that you can that you can do. And so we would encourage uh, all the listeners, uh, all the uh, trauma lovers out there, if you don't have one at your facility, uh, think about uh, putting one together. So until then, Stay vigilant, save lives, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.